rifled through Trinity Community Church's mailbox this week, you would have found a letter that ironically would have been a huge blessing to the church in Smyrna. Uh, that's, a, that's a church that we're covering this morning in our little series. Do you see what it says there in verse 9? Jesus says, I know your poverty. The letter that we got in the mail this past week uh, included a large check, a large check that someone willed to us in their estate. Those of you who have been around here for a long time, uh, Mr. Bob Miller was very generous to us. Um, and we're grateful because it's going to serve us well here as we seek to take care of our facility and also invest in the mission both locally and globally as well. Um, if you're just joining us this week, we have just uh, in the last couple of weeks entered into the process of doing something that would be a felony here in modern day America. We're digging through someone else's mail, uh, specifically the mail of seven other churches in the first century. This week we're opening up Smyrna, the church in Smyrna's mail. Uh, if the letter to Smyrna was penned in more modern times, it might start with something like, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Maybe you recognize that phrase taken from Charles Dickens, the opening paragraph of his famous novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. The point of that phrase is to suggest to the reader that the story is going to feature radical opposites taking place simultaneously. Radical op opposites taking place simultaneously. There are radical contrasts here in this letter too. If you look with me, look at verse 8. It talks about the first and the last. Again in verse 8, dead and alive. Verse 9, poverty and riches. Verse 10, death and life. These are all realities that beckon us to believe that things aren't always as they seem. We can appear poor, but actually be rich. We may appear dead on the outside, our bodies dead, but the real us, definitely alive. Things can be bad and good at the exact same time. This will be an important contrast to keep in our minds today as we wade into this letter and then as we leave this place too. We want this contrast to be in our mind. Things aren't always as they seem. Last week, we investigated the letter to Ephesus based on the four parts of that letter, the to field, the from field, the body of the letter, and then the conclusion. And we're going to follow that same pattern this week. And you'll note, again, just like last week, that all seven churches are invited to read the mail of the other churches. You can see that there in verse 11. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So there's a sense in which they were all CC'd. They were all carbon copied on each other's mail, and so are we. We are CC'd on Smyrna's mail. And so here is where we are headed today. Two, the poor, slandered, suffering church in Smyrna. Carbon copy, Trinity Community Church. From Jesus, the first and the last, who died and came to life. The body of it, the main point of the, the letter, don't fear and stay faithful because of Jesus. And in conclusion, Jesus promises protection from the second death. So let's start with that two field this morning. This letter is written to the Christians in a city called Smyrna. It's the only city among the seven that are addressed here in the beginning of Revelation. It's the only city that remains today. Uh, except today it's known as the city of Izmir. It's a beautiful coastal city on the Aegean Sea. In AD 23, Smyrna competed against 11 other cities to become the host city for the newest temple designed to enshrine 
the Roman emperor Tiberius, uh, who was also the Roman emperor at the time when Jesus was crucified. Uh, and so there's this competition. Who's going to be the city that gets to host this beautiful new temple? Well, Smyrna, because of its beauty and of its location and of its prominence at the time in the Mediterranean world, won the competition among the 11 cities. And as such, she became a really valuable asset to Rome. And she became a prominent center of the imperial cult, which was marked by the worship of whatever, whoever the Roman emperor was at the time. That's what the imperial cult was, worship of the Roman emperor. It became a very proud city over time, with first in Asia in beauty and size. First in Asia in beauty and size was inscribed on all the coins of the day in Smyrna. And most of this pride was fueled by their good standing with Rome, who enjoyed widespread military domination in the region. If you stayed on their good side, on Rome's good side, you were safe. If not, your very life could be at risk. Don't mess with Rome. So historically speaking, we know that Smyrna judiciously sided with Rome during the wars of the day. They were clearly in good with the major power broker of the day, Rome. We're not clear on the origins of the church that came to the city of Smyrna, but it seems like Paul's influence from Ephesus might have been the initial trigger for it. You can see this in Acts 19. And it happened that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This continued for two years, so that, here it is, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, so that all the residents of Asia would have included the city of Smyrna, just 35 miles up the coast from Ephesus. Presumably someone there in Ephesus heard Paul preach and then took that message back up north uh, to Smyrna, and a church was formed. Um, a few days after from Jesus, Smyrna would be hearing from him too, just 35 miles up the coast. And so over the course of time, a Jewish community in the city came into bitter conflict with the Christians. In verse 9, you can look, Jesus describes the relationship like this. He says, I know your tribulation and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. So that the Jews in Smyrna were saying things against the Christians in Smyrna that the Christians considered to be slander. I'm sure it wasn't all the Jews there. Some of the Jews there, I'm sure, had been redeemed by Jesus, converted to Christianity, and they were not contributing themselves to the slander. Um, but I think right here it'll be helpful to add a little bit more historical context so we can understand the nature, or the, uh, yeah, the nature underneath this slander. At this time, Rome was beginning to understand their emperors to be gods, and they were demanding all the citizens of the Roman Empire, uh, whether they were Roman or not, to pay allegiance to the emperor. And to demonstrate this allegiance, each citizen was to take a pinch of incense and then put it on the fire that burned in the presence of the image of the Roman Caesar and then bow to the Caesar as God. Pinch of incense and then bow to this image of Caesar as God. The penalty for refusing this worship was either imprisonment or potentially death. The point for Rome, more than anything, was to keep the empire underneath the thumb of Caesar. And so keep peace in the empire. It wasn't all terribly motivated. And because Rome's power, to some degree, worked during that day in some really positive ways. Do you remember learning about the Pax Romana in school, maybe in elementary school or high school, the Pax Romana? Pax Romana just literally means Roman peace. 
And it refers to this 200-year period of time in which this letter was written to Smyrna. 200-year period of time that saw unprecedented peace and economic prosperity throughout the, the empire. And so safe streets and safe seas in exchange for a pinch of incense and a little bowing to Caesar. But because the point was more targeted at power um, and peace, uh, targeted at power and peace, rather than worship, the point was it wasn't so much about worship. It was more about power and peace. Because of that, Rome made some exceptions to this rule that you would have to pinch the incense and bow to Caesar. Namely, their exception or their exemption was targeted at the Jews. Because the Jews were party to an ancient, peaceful, and then monotheistic one-god religion, the Romans did not force emperor worship on them during that time. And from the Roman perspective, Christianity was just like a subset of Judaism. So Christians got kind of lumped in with the Jews and enjoyed the benefits of that same exemption that the Jews enjoyed. So like the Jews, Christians didn't have to pinch the incense and bow to Caesar. Jews and Christians, while sharing significant theological overlap, obviously have one major theological difference, right? Jesus. Jesus. And so over time, this began to irritate the Jews, great against them. And they began to stir up trouble for the Christians in Smyrna. Maybe they were concerned that their exemption from this may be taken away based on the fact that Christians put another king above Caesar, namely Jesus. So it's likely that this slander that you read about there in verse 9 came in the form of whispers to the Roman authorities that the Christians were rebellious and dangerous. The Jewish communities themselves did not have the right or the power to punish the Christians. So instead, they slandered them to get them into trouble with the Roman authorities. We find an example of this sort of thing when Paul planted a church in a city called Thessalonica. The Jews there stirred up a mob and said to the authorities, this is in Acts 17, it says, These men who have turned the world upside down, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. That's a dirty move right there, isn't it? Causing a riot and then blaming it on the Christians. So this is the situation for Smyrna Community Church. The Jewish synagogue linked up with the local Roman authorities are coming against the Christian church with official sanctions that are causing a season of significant tribulation and distress for the church there. And listen, Jesus does not sugarcoat anything here. He says, look, it's bad now, but hold on. It's about to get way worse for y'all there in Smyrna. According to verse 10 there, some Christians were going to be thrown in prison, and then some even put to death for their faith. You've got to kind of put yourself in their shoes this morning, the Christians in Smyrna. I mean, it's already bad enough, but the heat is about to get cranked up even more. And we've got to wonder... On behalf of the Smyrnans, I've really wrestled all week. What do you call these people? Smyrnans? Smyrnians? Smyrnoffs? I don't know. Um, We've got to wonder on behalf of the people in Smyrna. Is following Jesus more trouble than it's worth? Is following Jesus more trouble than it is worth? We're not under threat of death in America yet. But social death is on the table. Cancellation is what we call it here. Christians don't get killed, but they do get canceled. Is following Jesus 
worth all the trouble. I'm going to let that pebble stay in your shoe for a couple of minutes. Is following Jesus more trouble than it's worth? Imagine with me, as one author has, and he's captured the reality of the desperation that the Smyrna church must have felt. He says this, Imagine yourself sitting among the gathering of God's people in Smyrna on a cold morning before sunrise. A small lamp-lit room houses the remnant of beaten and beleaguered church members. The once lively crowd of Christians now displays obvious gaps where men and women once sat. Some have fallen away under the persecution. Others are simply gone, arrested, exiled, or executed. Some of you risked your lives just to meet this morning, to pray, to sing hymns to God, and to read from Holy Scripture. All of you are outcasts, desperate for a word of encouragement from the messenger sitting in your midst. In the dim light, the pastor unrolls a scroll and begins to read with a calm, quiet confidence. Whispering and shuffling in the room ceases when you hear from whom the message comes, the risen Lord himself. The entire group seems to hold its breath when Christ begins his commendation. I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. That's the two, the church in Smyrna. How about the from? Look at verse 1. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Maybe you remember from last week that these descriptions from Jesus are emphasis about himself that come from that come at the beginning of each of these seven letters. They come from the description of himself back in chapter one. And what is emphasized in this letter to the church at Smyrna? We'll look back at Revelation chapter one, verses 17 and 18. It's on screen for you. He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. For I, as Jesus speaking, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And so we, we should ask ourselves this morning why Jesus picked this part of his description from chapter 1 to encourage the church at Smyrna. He could have picked any of them, but he picked this one for them and not for the other churches. Well, doesn't it make sense for those facing death to hear from the only one who had the power over death? This message, stay faithful unto death. That's what Jesus says here. Stay faithful unto death. Man, that would be sadistic and manipulative from anyone other than Jesus Christ himself. But it is not sadistic and it is not manipulative because it comes from the one who says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. More on that in a bit. We've seen the two. We've seen the from. Now let's move to the body of the letter, the meat of it. When I was at a former church, we could not afford to pay someone to clean the church building. Uh, and so we spread the responsibility of cleaning the church across the, the small groups in the church. Uh, Steve and Jane Quigley will remember these days. We cleaned that church building together many times. Uh, spending an evening during your week cleaning the building was no small ask, and we got that. So we tried to sweeten the deal by providing pizza and saying something like, come on out and help us clean because pizza, right? Because pizza or because hashtag pizza. Uh, so we provide pizza as a draw, an incentive for them to come and clean with us because pizza was supposed to be the hook that persuaded them to make the effort of packing themselves up and their kids up to make the effort to come out and take care of our facility. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm kind of wondering if we had just taken our pizza money and contributed to someone to clean the building, maybe we could have because dumb, I guess, I don't know. 
But I think this is what is happening here. The Christians in Smyrna were up against it in a real serious way. And the Spirit swoops in to say, don't fear. Stay faithful. Steady, my friend. Because Jesus. So that's the main idea, the body of this text. Don't fear and stay faithful because Jesus. I pull this from the two major verbs there in verse 10. It says, do not fear, and then later on it says, be faithful. These are the two central commands of this short letter. We too can remain unafraid and stay faithful because Jesus. And because Jesus what, though? Don't fear and stay faithful because Jesus, one, knows your situation, two, gets the last word, and three, owns the crown. Those are the three things that we're going to swirl around this morning. We can stay faithful and unafraid because of these things. Number one, don't fear and stay faithful because Jesus knows your situation. Jesus wanted Smyrna to know that he was aware of their hardship. He wanted them to know that they were seen, that he saw them. Verse 10 says that they will be thrown into prison. Some of them will be thrown into prison for 10 days. Uh, We talked a little bit before that sometimes in the book of Revelation, numbers are symbolic. I think that's the case here. Uh, I don't think that this necessarily means that they're going to be thrown into prison for 10 literal days. The point is that Jesus said that this prison tribulation is going to be a fixed, limited period of suffering for those in Smyrna that they must endure. But do you see who does the throwing here? It's interesting. It's the devil. Now, isn't this interesting that Satan is throwing the people from this church into prison? Jesus, the one who has power over death itself, presumably has power over Satan, introducing these trials into the church at Smyrna, right? Surely Jesus could just step into the situation, take care of Satan, and prevent the hardship, right? I mean, Jesus has just claimed to be, especially in chapter 1, he's just claimed to be like crazy sovereign over everything, Lord of it all, no rival to his cosmic power. He's got the keys to death itself. And yet, now he's like, I just want you to know, bad stuff is coming. And you're going to meet with some significant hardship. So how does Jesus' lordship square with our hardship? What is the subtle point that Jesus is making? Jesus' lordship and your hardship are not at odds. Jesus' lordship and your hardship are not at odds. We need to have a big enough vision of God, a vision of life that can handle trials because they are coming. You might be walking through the thick of one right now. Jesus is big enough and good enough and wise enough and Lord enough to steward our suffering to something good. So that little phrase that you see there in the middle of verse 10, that you may be tested, is this surprising to you? Life is hard. Christians especially shouldn't be surprised when trials come, and we should allow them to test us, to test our mettle, and then to strengthen us. Trials for the Christian are normal. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus' lordship and your hardship are not at odds. Take comfort in this today, Christian. You cannot separate your trials from your Savior. 
And your trials cannot separate you from your Savior because Jesus knows your situation and he's with you in it. Jesus' deep desire here is that these trials not finish us as Christians. And one of the ways that we can persevere, keep going, is by knowing who is at the helm when we're taken on water. Jesus knew of their hardship, and he knows of yours. Jesus knows. There is rich comfort there if you let it settle down into the deepest parts of your soul. Paul's teaching pairs well here from Romans 5. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Why is endurance such a big deal? Well, because the scriptures liken our Christian life to a race with a prize at the end that we are straining towards. The prize of forever life with Jesus the Christ. And verse 10 here calls it, this prize, the crown of life. So if you do not endure, you will not receive the prize, the crown. But see, for most of us, trials feel like an interruption to progress, but they are actually God's process for our progress. The sovereign king has designed this trial to strengthen the muscles in Smyrna's spiritual legs so that they can finish the race and get the crown. In other words, in your pain, you are not being treated as an enemy. You are being tested as a loved child of God. The issue is, will you believe this? Will you let the word of God settle the issue for you? So that when trial comes, you don't turn on Jesus and leave the race. We've got to finish our race, church. We have to, for our soul's sake, for our kids' sake, for other members in here's sake, for the community out there's sake. We've got to finish our race. And one of God's intended means for this strengthening us is through trial and tribulation. We don't, we don't think like this naturally, though, do we? How many of us, when we are smack dab in the middle of a trial, whatever it may be, how many of us think, I can't see any reason for this suffering, and there can't be a good reason for it? Been there, done that. But that's like getting to the end of a, a workout at your gym and complaining that your legs feel like jelly and that you're no stronger than when you came into the gym. In fact, you feel weaker, right, when you're leaving the gym? But things are not always as they seem, right? In the gym, it never feels like you're getting stronger. It feels the opposite. But it's not true. When you discipline your body, it has to get weak before it gets strong. It's not so different in our journey with Jesus. Sometimes we have to be weakened in order to be strengthened. That's the purpose of discipline in the gym, and that's the purpose of God's loving trials for us too. Here's the, the truth at the end of the day. Without discipline, there is no strength. Without strength, there is no endurance. And without endurance, there is no Jesus, no crown of life. This is why these trials, in the end, hear me, are good because they produce endurance and endurance by God's grace is the only way you become like Jesus, get to Jesus, and get the crown of Jesus. What did Jesus know about the Smyrnan trials? Look at verse 9. He learned or he knew that they were materially poor and spiritually attacked. Jesus saw their poverty. Maybe you're here today 
and you work for a Christian organization, and they are unable to pay you what you're actually really worth. I'm not talking about me. We are well cared for here at the church. I mean others in here or in our church who have given their lives to Christ's work and yet are materially impoverished, at least by American standards. Can I tell you this, if that resonates with you? Jesus sees you. This morning, Jesus sees you and he knows. And do you know what he says? He says, ah, things aren't always as they seem. It may appear to be the worst of times, but really it's the best of times. Look at verse 9. He's like, I know your poverty, parentheses, but you are rich. You are spiritually rich, and your greater reward is coming. Stay faithful because Jesus. That is not a cheap comfort. This is not a gimmick I'm trying to sell you this morning. If Jesus is really real, if Jesus really got up from the grave, And if right now, in this very moment, he is really sitting next to the Father, all he has to do is look around and scan the room that he's in right now, and he can see that you are rich right now. You are rich even in poverty, even in prison, even in death, you are rich. Romans 8, if you are children of God, then you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You are rich. All of those who labor for wealth in this life, think on it. They literally already have the reward. I'm not saying that being wealthy or rich in this life is wrong. I'm saying if that is your life's intent and goal, that's it. That is your prize. That's as good as it's going to get. Nothing better is coming. But for those of us who are laboring for the next life, we are rich and our eternal reward awaits. Because Jesus knows our situation, things aren't always as they seem. We can be poor and rich at the same exact time. Well, we're not exactly sure why the Smyrnans were experiencing material poverty in Smyrna, but it looks like it was likely a result of that slander that the Jews were spreading about them, which belongs in the next main point. So don't fear and stay faithful because Jesus gets the last word. Remember, some of the Jews became informants on the Christians to the Roman authorities in an attempt to get the Christians into trouble and to get that exemption uh, removed from them. But look at what Jesus calls these Jewish people participating in this behavior. Look at verse 9. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Whew. Harsh words. And this is not, believe it or not, a new sentiment from Jesus. In John 8, Jesus confronts unbelieving Jews, and he says this, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Synagogue of Satan and children of the devil have a similar, shall we say, unpleasant ring to them, don't they? Jesus is not being anti-Semitic here, though, at all. Jesus was himself a Jew, after all. But if you, like me, have ever wondered maybe what some of the origins of anti-Semitism were, maybe this text informs a little bit of part of the answer to that question. John Piper sheds a little further light here. He says, this shows that the animosity from the Jewish community toward the Christian church in the first two or three centuries was immense. And this is problematic from the Christian side of things. It started to go both ways. 
He says, I mention this as a partial explanation, not as a justification. Hatred and persecution and ridicule toward Jews as a people is never justified. Our main disposition should be Paul's. My heart's desire and prayer to God is that they might be saved. And so I exhort you, don't joke about Jewishness. Don't use cavalier stereotypes. Don't hate. Don't ridicule. If you pray for Jewish people the way that Paul and Stephen and Jesus did, with a heart of longing for their salvation and love for them as the estranged people of God, you will find it very difficult to make jokes or speak disparagingly. Amen to that. But let's not miss Jesus' point. I don't want to excuse anti-Semitism even one little bit. And at the same time, we shouldn't dilute Jesus' words one little bit either. In calling these non-Christian Jews a synagogue of Satan, Jesus is implying that our physical heritage has no bearing on our spiritual future. Our physical heritage has no bearing on our spiritual future. Non-Christian Judaism has rejected Jesus as Messiah, and she has taken, they have taken their stand against him. Isn't this exactly what Satan does? He rejects and stands against Jesus. And he slanders Jesus' people. In Revelation 12, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. Not all that unlike what these Smyrnian Jews were doing to the Christians. This is why he says that these people weren't true Jews. They knew their Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards, but ignored the obvious person that they all pointed to. So have, have you ever been in a place where someone was slandering you? With particularly argumentative people, they probably couldn't stand to let you have the last word. It can be galling to let that last text or email or dig come at us without defending ourselves. The Christians in Smyrna knew what that felt like. But they could stay faithful in the midst of that because Jesus gets the last word. Look at it there in verse 1. Christ is the first and the last this means that at the end of the day, Jesus gets the last word. This reality undermines all the slander that we receive as Christians. In the end, there will only be one truth. Jesus, not slander, will last. Here in America in 2023, we're not too terribly far off from the days of Smyrna. In many ways, there are, these days are already here as we increasingly become objects of derision and slander. Oh, I mean, if we, if we bow to their worldview, if we offer a pinch of incense, as it were, or a nod or a shrug at their lifestyle, they're going to leave us alone. But stand up for the truth, hold the line, that's when the slander comes for us as Christians. For those of us who are holding to Christ, just know that the world will increasingly and more hostily oppose us. And not just by saying that we are wrong, that's what it used to be. You're just wrong. Now they insinuate worse like the Christians did in, uh, like the Christians experienced in Smyrna. Now we hear that we are evil. We hear that Christians are dangerous and disruptive to peaceful society. Anti-Semitic, anti-choice, anti-woman, anti-gay, anti-intellectual, anti-tolerance, anti-diversity, anti-trans, anti-whatever. This is our label now. We should never be hateful, but we should not back away from the truth of God's word. Don't pinch the incense. 
One of our newest members, uh, Lou Protnicki, he organizes and leads a prayer meeting each Sunday night for the persecuted church. He hosts it on Zoom. If you'd like to know a little bit more about that, Lou, can you raise your hand? You can track him down afterwards and he can get you the link to that. Uh, I'd encourage you to join it if you can. But in an email that he sent this past week, he sent an update about a particular church in China. It didn't say much, but reading between the lines, it said enough. It said this, I saw on Facebook that the early rain covenant church in China was raided by the police once again. Yet the saints there were courageous and loving. We have much to learn from them, and they need our prayers. We've never experienced anything like a church raid before. But how comforting do you think it is for them to know and believe that Jesus gets the last word, not the Chinese Gestapo? The same for the Smyrnian Christians. How comforting must it have been to read that Jesus is the first and the last. Don't let the pressure squeeze you and persuade you to walk away from Jesus. He, not they, will get the last word. Hear this from Romans 8. And all the things in parentheses or brackets are my own additions, just so we're clear. What then shall we say to these slanderous things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies us, even when the world slanders us. Who is to condemn? And even if the world does condemn, what can they do? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or slander or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's that Nike word again that we've been circling around and around, conquerors. And he says, in all these things, we are conquerors. In other words, conquering in Jesus' mind doesn't mean overcoming these things, but it means standing in these things right next to Jesus while he absorbs the slander for us, the brunt of the world's slanders. Words are lodged on him. And he takes the penalty for it because he has the last word. He is the first and he is the last. You have to preach this to yourself in a day that we are being further and further, further and further, further and further marginalized. It feels like the end of the world when the world is coming at us with this stuff and marginalizing us for our faith. But it's not the end of the world. Count it all joy when you are persecuted for Jesus' sake. Do you know how I can say that with a straight face, to count it joy when you are persecuted? Because Jesus will have not only the last word, but he will have the last laugh. I love to return to the words of Psalm 2. Look at this. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here it is. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Jesus will have the last word and the last laugh. He isn't phased one little bit by humanity's rejection. Instead, he laughs. Man, I think this is so great. There's a real comfort here, Trinity. Our mighty American politicians, terrorists with bombs strapped to their chests, global dictators, atheists, agnostics, even you and me, God is totally unimpressed. While the world struts its stuff, God sits back and can't help but LOL. When you're on social media 
and the outspoken critics of Christianity strut their stuff, be reminded God isn't phased. And you don't need to be either. Let God's laughter refocus your heart. It's going to be okay. Jesus gets the last word. There's a certain restfulness of soul when you are within earshot of God's laughter. And to stay within earshot of God's laughter, stay within earshot of this book. The outlandish bravado of our politicians, of kings and celebrities, will be drowned out by the laughter of our God. Friends, if you are in Jesus, you are safe. You are on the right side of history. God is so carefree that he can laugh this morning. And he's got you despite the world's rejection of you. Things aren't always as they seem. You can be slandered and vindicated at the exact same time. Slandered by the world, vindicated by the only one that actually matters. Don't fear and stay faithful because Jesus knows your situation. Jesus gets the last word. And then finally today... Don't fear and stay faithful because Jesus owns the crown. There was a real possibility that some of these Christians were going to die for staying with Jesus. You can see that at the end of verse 10. Look at it. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. There's a reason Jesus employed this crown imagery with the Christians in Smyrna. See, Smyrna's goddess, Sybil, was pictured with the crown on the coinage of the day. Over against these claims, Jesus offers the true crown. When the fight is fought and the race is run and you die at the finish line, the wreath that will be put on your head will be the crown of life, everlasting life. No more pain, no more slander, no more shame, no more tears, no more depression, no more anxiety, no more frustration, no more discouragement, only life and light and joy crowned with the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ forever. So is Jesus worth the trouble? Yes. Unquestionably, yes. Because he's the only one who can give you the crown of life, everlasting life. Look, there is an unsettling reality here that grates against prosperity gospel. It's this. Victory for the Smyrnan Christians wasn't escaping the threats, but enduring them. Not escape, but endurance as they labored for the crown of life. Man, I know the feeling well of thinking, man, if I could just get out of this one current trial and tribulation, I'd get a little bit healthier and stronger and I'd be ready for the next one. And I'll just like, I'll, I'll stand up underneath the pressure of that one, but help me escape this one, Jesus, right now, please. That's just a myth we tell ourselves, though. Elizabeth Elliot dispels this myth in a really incisive way. She says, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Whoa. Stay with Jesus no matter what, church. It can be tempting to shrug at the crown of life for relevance in this life, but don't be seduced. These Christians stood with Jesus. And it was love. It was not loving to cower or to blush when the truth was at stake for them. For us, it's, it's loving to own the truth, to embrace it, and to say it when opportunity arises, not hatefully, but truthfully. Listen, church, as our world inches further and further away from God's truth, the temptation is going to be to be embarrassed of our faith. But can I call on us all today to not blush when Jesus doesn't blush? In other words, don't be embarrassed when Jesus isn't embarrassed. The Smyrnans didn't blush. That's why they were under threat for holding to the truth. 
getting thrown into jail. Some are even being killed. What should our response be when the slander pressure comes on strong? Not to escape, but to endure. Don't be afraid. Don't back down. You are on the right side. Be graciously on the right side. History will vindicate you because Jesus will be vindicated with the last word. Uh, My in-laws have always been big weather channel people. I'm very serious about this. I don't know if that phrase has ever been used in history before, big weather channel people. Like, what you been watching on Netflix recently? Nah, Netflix, I'm a big weather channel guy myself. Who says that? My in-laws do. Um, But more than once, I've seen on their TV when it's just been on in the background, one of those clips of a weatherman or a woman who are filming out in the middle of a hurricane. You can probably pull an image like that to your mind's eye. And what are they doing? They're like, they're leaning into the wind like this as it's blasting them from this side. They're not going with the wind, or at least they're trying not to. They're pushing back into it. They're digging in, they're lowering their shoulder, their raincoat is flapping furiously, and they're ducking their heads into the wind. It's not a natural impulse unless you have a higher goal of shooting a clip for your TV show, right? And let me tell us all and warn us all, it will not be natural for us to lean in to try to endure. What's natural for us is to try to escape. You have to choose to endure. You won't feel compelled to endure. When Christianity goes really public in a pagan world, instead of remaining in our safe, isolated, comfortable sanctuaries, the the opposition is going to label us not as mistaken, but as evil and as dangerous. The ironic and tragic response of many Christians in this atmosphere of conflict is to simply disappear and to think that we're doing God a favor by stirring up no opposition in his name. What God wants to accomplish through these difficulties is the single most important thing in all of your life, though, church. He wants to give you the crown of life. And this crown of life is like the victor's crown for the ancient Greek Olympic Games, when someone would finish first in the race. The point is that for those who remain steadfast through trials, lean into them, stand up underneath them, they will receive this crown of victory from Jesus himself. He owns the crown. They will have allowed the trials of their lives to strengthen their souls rather than to strangle their souls. When we are crowned victorious by Jesus, what happens? Verse 11, the conclusion here, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There's something far worse than death. Jesus says that the second death is far worse. God is not mainly in the business of sparing us from the first death or the pain that leads up to it. He is utterly devoted to rescuing us from the second death. What is that second death? It's a hard word in modern day day America. From Revelation 20 here. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Non-Christians in the building this morning. Please consider the prospects of you not getting this crown from Jesus. You will not participate, according to the Bible, you will not participate in the resurrection of the saints, nor in the beautiful, wonderful new life to come. Instead, you will be doomed to the second death, where you will pay for your sins, rather than Jesus having paid for your sins. Let me urge you to go with Jesus, paying for your sins. 
It's kind of a sobering conclusion to this letter. But if I can sprinkle a couple of applications and a little hope here at the end. Number one, pray for the persecuted church. I already mentioned how to do this. You can link up with Lou if you're interested in, in getting in on that gig, at least occasionally. Pray for the persecuted church. Number two, read about history's persecuted church. This book right here um, is a book that I'm reading to my girls in the evenings uh, after dinner. It's called 10 Girls Who Didn't Give In. If you don't know me, I have four daughters. Never figured the boy thing out, so it seemed appropriate for our house. Uh, 10 Girls Who Did Not Give In. And actually, at the end of each of the stories, these young girls uh, give their lives for Jesus. It's great dinner fare. Uh, but it's actually been really faith-building faith for us. Good book to pick up uh, if you'd like to read about that. Just last night, uh, we're almost finished with the book, but last night we read of 18-year-old Margaret Wilson, who on May 11th, 1685, refused to turn her back on Jesus Christ. And so listen to the moment. I'm going to read it for you, and I'll throw it up on screen so you can follow along with me. Listen to the moment that she received her crown of life. Look, if Jesus is really real, and if Jesus really got up from the grave, and if Jesus is really sitting on the throne right now, on May 11th, 1685, he handed her the crown of life. Can you imagine? At low water, the tide at Wigton, it's a, it's a uh, river, I guess, somewhere in, in London, I think. It goes out at a very long distance, leaving acres of wet sand. When the tide comes in, it rushes up what used to be the path of a river so quickly that many people have drowned there as they tried to reach dry land. Margaret Wilson, aged 18, and Margaret McLaughlin, McLaughlin, aged 63, could not run to safety, for they were tied to stakes securely hammered into the sand. The older woman was put further out in order that she would be drowned first in full view of young Margaret, and a crowd gathered, a crowd gathered to watch it all happen. If they shout out, take an oath to the king, run in and cut them free before it's too late, the soldiers were told. They waited. They listened for a scream, but none came. Margaret spoke only to the Lord, and as the waters began to lap about her feet, she sang one of the psalms. Someone ran from the crowd when the girl was almost drowning, grabbing Margaret and holding her above the water. He told her to say, God save the king. She said, God save him if you will for it is his salvation that I desire. A woman on the shore gasped out, there, she has said it, now let her go. But one man with a vicious temper snarled, we don't want that wench's prayers, make her sign the oath. Margaret was asked to sign the oath and she refused. I will not, she said. I am one of Christ's children, let me go. They did and the water flowed over her head. That was when a new day began for Margaret in heaven. Can you imagine that moment? The crown of life handed to Margaret. That must have been some party in heaven. Don't be afraid and stay faithful, church. Lastly, plan to be the persecuted church. We've talked a little bit about this already, but one thing I just want to say about being the persecuted church is this. Take comfort. Jesus is patient with us. I don't know if you picked up on it, but there is no correction for the church here in this text at all. Jesus was pretty stern with the Ephesian Christians. He's like, I'm gonna snuff your light out. Your church is going if you don't pick up the slack. But not here with the church in Smyrna. It's like Jesus is like bending down and looking them in the eyes and saying, hey, it's gonna be okay. Hang on. The crown of life is coming. Don't be afraid and stay faithful because it's going to be okay. 
but how do we know that it's going to be okay? I want to encourage all of us just to collectively agree to be a little bit like my, a little bit more like my brother-in-law, who I kid you not, when he picks up a novel, he doesn't start here like most of us start. He flips to the last page. And he likes to see how it ends before he flips back to the beginning to read the whole book. Um, listen, church, read the end again and again and again. Things are not always as they seem. It can literally be, literally be the worst of times and the best of times at the exact same time. Because Jesus conquered, we conquer. Again, if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you're going to have to look at it through the lens of victory, of Nike. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer that's where we get our word Nike from. The Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. Ultimately, Revelation is about how we can enter into Christ's victory and claim it as our own. Don't pinch the incense. Don't give in. And just wait for that crown of life, because it's coming. At the end of the day, we are going to do this imperfectly, so we rest in the victory that Jesus has already won. Amen. Mike is going to come pray these things deep into our soul now for us this morning. Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, help us, Lord, as we pray. Lord, you know we live in a world where there is just so much of the world in our face, it is hard to be mindful of you on the throne at the end of the book. And we do simply wish that the circumstances would change. We do wish for progress that we can measure. Lord Jesus, we do ask for your help, um, that the power of your spirit would open our eyes to see reality as you see it. Um, that we could see reality as you see it, Lord, and uh, have our souls filled up with your wind to be blown in the way that you would have us go. Amen. Amen.